when we started the series, we are talking about uh, people that Jesus has interacted with. And so we started the first week and we looked at Nicodemus, the guy there on the uh, left side of your screen, right? And Nicodemus was a, he was a Jewish teacher. He was kind of the, the top of the top, the cream of the crop. And uh, he knew the scriptures, but he was confused about the scriptures. And Jesus helped him sort it out. And we saw really in the midst of that, that Nicodemus was this holy, righteous teacher of a guy. And we saw that he was not beyond the need of the grace of Jesus. And then next week, we looked at a completely different story, almost an opposite story in some ways, where Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at the well. And she's kind of all the things that Nicodemus isn't. And we saw her that, in her that she was a, a deeply broken sinner. And what was so beautiful is that she wasn't beyond the reach of grace. Nicodemus wasn't beyond the need of grace. She wasn't beyond the reach of grace. And so today, uh, we're going to look at a different individual and almost a different kind of story. But I think the same principle applies, just as with Nicodemus and just as with the Samaritan woman. And with this guy we're looking at today, Jesus meets us right where we are, right where we need him. So today we're going to be reading from uh, Matthew uh, chapter 19, and uh, surely you're familiar with this guy's story, Uh, and in fact it's not just a one-time thing. This passage uh, is uh, repeated again in uh, Mark chapter 10 and in Luke chapter 18, and of course this is the... uh, the story of the, of the ruler, the rich young ruler. Um, and so I would encourage you, we're going to be going out of Matthew 19 this morning. Definitely, if you've got your Bible, you can open it up and follow along. Um, but just like we have through this series, I'm going to read it a piece at a time, and we'll just follow along. So we'll start this out. So this man, but it says, Behold, a man came up to him, a man came up to Jesus, and he said, Teacher, what good deed must I do? to have eternal life. And so maybe the first question we can ask when we look at this is, okay, who was this guy? Who was he? Right? It doesn't tell us his name. So many times we get a name in scriptures. Or, but this guy has this interaction, and we don't know who he is. Well, all we can have is what we can deduce from the text. So we look at the text, and we say, okay, well, first off, we understand this guy was a Jew. You know, Walking around in Jesus' time, there were Jews and there were Gentiles, and Gentiles a lot of them were Romans or other people. And well, we know this guy was a Jew, and the way we know he was a Jew is because of how he that first word he says right there to Jesus. He says, "Teacher." You know, nobody who wasn't a Jew would have had ever had that title for Jesus. So we understand, okay, this guy is a Jewish guy. He's not a Gentile. He's not a Roman. He's a Jew. Uh, then we also see that. He's also young. Well, how do we know that he's young? Well, if you go, if you go to verse 22, it, it says that he is young, right? He's a young man. Let's see if I can get the slide to go here. There he goes. He's young, right? So he's kind of got things going for him. Those of us who are getting older understand that the older you get, the more the wheels fall off, and the more you start forgetting things, and the more you're, you don't have your strength and your vigor quite as much as you did when you were younger, and He's had everything going for him here, right? He's a Jew, so he's in with the people. He's young. Uh, we see also, uh, if you look over in Luke 18, it describes him as a ruler. It doesn't say that in the Matthew passage, but it does say that in Luke. Luke 
sometimes give us a little more detail. Uh, and what does that mean? He was a ruler. Uh, well, it means he had some sort of government authority, some sort of leadership position amongst the Jewish people. We don't know what that was, whether he was a magistrate or, or whatever, but it was a good position because everybody respected him. He, he wasn't a tax collector. He was a good guy. And he had all of this respect. So here he was. He was Jew. He was young. He was a ruler. We also see that he was wealthy, which means he had a lot. We see that in verse 22. We'll read that in a minute. And so it paints this picture. We've got this well-off, well-respected, up-and-coming young man who has good morals. And it seems like he's got everything going for him. But in spite of all this, that we see on the outside, he had something else going on. And in his mind and in his heart, he had these questions about eternity. What must I do to have eternal life? Here he was at the top, at the pinnacle. Everyone would look up to this guy and say, that guy has got things going. And he says, what must I do? What must I do? And so think about in your own life, uh, think about people you might know. And I, I've thought through my own life, and I've thought of some people I know, too, who, who, who maybe this would describe them at least to some level. Maybe we don't know, you know the perfect people who seem like they're perfect or have everything going for them. But you probably know some people in your life, and you go, well, uh, you know, they really need Jesus, but it just seems like everything's going great for them in their life. And here I think we have a story that shows us that, you know what? If you don't have Jesus, if you're not following Jesus, you don't have everything good in your life. So Jesus, of course, answers him. And Jesus says, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter into life, keep the commandments. Right? And it can be easy to get confused here since, since we're not present and we didn't see this happening. Uh, because it almost kind of seems like Jesus didn't answer the question, right? He says, what must I do? He goes, what are you talking about what's good? There's only one who's good. You go, wait, what? You didn't even answer the question, Jesus. But he did. And I think what Jesus is really saying here is it's almost like he's saying, good deed? Good deed? Good deed? There is no deed that is truly good. Because only God is good. And this can connect us right back to Nicodemus. Because what did he say to Nicodemus? He said, the only way for you to get to a good God is to go through that good God. The only way to get to him is through him. So he says, oh, you want to talk about good deeds? Well, to get good deeds, you've got to have the one who's good. And who's the one who's good? That's God above. Another way we could restate Jesus' words here is he says, ha, you think, young man, you think you can do something to get eternal life? Have you tried to obey the commandments? Are you perfect? It's like he's asking him this question, which ought to kind of be a rhetorical question, right? But the man totally misses Jesus' point, which is kind of a classic young man, you know, sort of impetuous young man. He just misses the points. And he says, oh, which ones? <laughs> Which ones? See, Jesus just gives him this rhetorical question that says, 
you can't be good enough. And he goes, okay, well, which one should I follow so I can be good enough to get to heaven? He's still caught up in the, the doing of the being good. And so think for a second. I know as a church, we, we, we have a heart for sharing the gospel with people and engaging people in conversations. And one of those things that kind of in the training we've, we've done as we've gone along are those ideas of those diagnostic questions. And you remember there's that one diagnostic question, which is one of my favorites. And it says, hey, you say to somebody, you say, hey, if you died today, and I know that's a morbid thought, but if you died today and you stood before God, and God said to you, hey, why should I let you into my heaven? What would your response be? And most of you know, if you've ever asked that question, probably the number one answer that people will give is what? I'm a good person. That's what they'll say. I'm a good person. Because I'm a good person, God will say, why, why should I let you in my heaven? I'll say, because I'm a good person. Now, you, know, you and I both know that that's actually not true, and so there's a great technique to respond to this where you can gently start to show somebody how that's not true. And what I think is really neat is that Jesus does almost exactly the same thing right here. Right? He says, okay, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your mother and father, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Right, so that technique we can use, the one I really like to use is, you say, oh, okay, you think you're a good person. Mike, that's very interesting. Well, let me ask you a couple more questions. Have you ever told a lie, even a tiny little lie? And, you know, if they're telling the truth, they'll say yes. If they're lying, they'll say no. And you'll say, well, you're lying to me now. <laughs> you go, okay, so you've told the lie. Okay, and what do we call someone who lies? Okay, we call them a liar. That's right. And have you ever stolen something, even a small thing? Have you ever stolen something? And almost everybody would invariably say, yes, I have stolen something. We say, okay, well, what do we call somebody who steals something? A thief, right? Okay, yeah, well, you know, Jesus told us, too, that when it comes to murder, he told us that when we hate somebody in our heart, that's the same thing as committing murder. So have you ever hated somebody in your heart? And invariably, the answer is yes. And then, you know, you could go on into some of these other sins, right? But you could say, okay, so by your own admission, you just told me you're a liar, a thief, and a murderer. But you said you're a good person. So which is it, right? Now, obviously, we're trying to be gentle when we have those conversations, right? And probably the first thing you want to say is, guess what? I'm the same as you. In fact, I'm probably worse than you are, <laughs> right? Just so you can have that relation point with them. But isn't it interesting we look at what Jesus said? Jesus said almost the same thing to this young man. He points out these things that surely this young man has broken these commands. Jesus is almost saying, oh, you're good? Well, have you obeyed the commandments? Now, some people have asked through history, they've said, why didn't Jesus list all of the commandments? And why did he put love your neighbor as yourself? Because that's not one of the Ten Commandments. That's not really there specifically in Deuteronomy. So why? And I think my answer, one thing that makes the most sense to me is he didn't really need to. He didn't need to list them all. It would have been just excessive. 
He just listed ones that he was like, well, nailed him and nailed him and nailed him and guilty and guilty. Right? He gets right to the man's sin. It reveals the man's sin. But what's so interesting in this case is this young man doesn't budge. Right? He, he continues on and he says, I don't know what you're talking about. All these things I've done. All these things I've kept. What do I still lack? And so his answer here reveals that there is an intense battle in this young man. There is a very tight tension in his heart. Again, he's going, oh, I'm doing, I'm doing, I'm doing, but something is not right. Something is missing, and he knows it, and that's why he's here asking these questions. And so that's on the one hand, but on the other hand, he's actually really deceiving himself, isn't he? He does really think he's actually good enough. He actually thinks he's good enough. He thinks he's obeyed the commandments. He thinks he hasn't sinned in such a way that he's broken his relationship with God. And so think back to who he is again. Remember, he's wealthy, he's young, he's respected, he's an authority in the community, and everything seems to be going right on the surface for him. And so he's going, how could something be broken when everything else in my life seems to be right? And he's kind of caught between these two things. And so again, I'd ask you, who do you know that fits this description? Who do you know? And then think about that person and how they right now are walking around in a very confusing, very turbulent time in our culture. And I would ask this, could God be using the pandemic and all of the circumstances and all of the economics and all of the things going on around us, could God be using that to draw out that tension in that person's heart? Something to think about. Maybe God is doing that in people's lives right around us. So Jesus, of course, answers him. And Jesus says, okay, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor. And you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. So when I think about this response that Jesus is giving, I think, okay, I think there's maybe three things. Maybe there's more, but I can sort of pull three things that he's telling the young man that I think he's also saying to us today. The first thing he's saying to us, I think, is he's saying, fine, go ahead and try to be perfect. Right? It's, it's almost like Jesus is saying, I release you, young man. Knock yourself out. Right? Any of you who have kids or spend any time around kids, especially little kids, you come across this all the time, right? Where kids are just so insistent upon trying to do this thing that you know they can't do on their own. And they're like, ah, I can do it, right? We have sort of a joke in, in our house where we say, oh, I can do it all my myself, Right? And it's the idea of the little kid who says, who, who is so intent on doing something, they're like, I want to do it, but they can't even say, I want to do it by myself in the right way. They say, I do it my myself. And that's kind of how we can be with God sometimes. And we think about this young man, we go, okay, in some ways he is right. He is right. The only way to get right with God is to be perfect. That's the only way, is to be perfect. But of course we know nobody is. And actually I think almost everybody in the culture understands that 
there is nobody out there who's perfect. So I think that's what Jesus, in, in one way, he's kind of just releasing this guy, saying, okay, well, see how that works out for you. I think the second thing Jesus is kind of saying here is, is he's going, young man, your problem here is that you don't actually love your neighbor as yourself. You don't actually love your neighbor as yourself. You say you're keeping that command, but you're not. Now, we'll see in a minute here that Jesus is not saying, hey, to be perfect, you have to be poor. He's not saying that. He's not saying that if you have money, you have to give it all away. He isn't even saying that by having money means you are not loving your neighbor. I don't think that's what he's saying at all. I think what Jesus is saying to this young man is he's saying, hey, young man, you have an idol in your heart. You are idolizing something in your heart. And that is to say for many, many people, money is an idol in their hearts. And for other people it isn't, of course. But for this young man, clearly his wealth made him proud. And his pride meant that he would not even consider taking some of what he had and giving it away to help others who had a need. He was not loving his neighbor. And I think Jesus is pointing that out to us, saying, hey, you have idols in your heart. I think the third thing Jesus is telling us when he says this is he says, hey, guess what? At the end of everything you do, after all of the efforts you can make and all of the right things that you think you can do, there is still going to be a gap between you and God. And the only way across that gap is through me, through Jesus. Right? He finishes here. He says, come follow me. Right? He's really saying what we see also in John chapter 14 when Jesus says, I am the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so I think Jesus is really presenting us a choice here. He's presenting us a choice. He's saying, option A, you can do all of the good works you can do. You can live on all of sort of the pious, righteous ways that you think you can. And when you get to the end, you will still be separated from God. Or you can abandon that. Option B is, you can follow Jesus. And when you follow Jesus, you are automatically right with God. And so then, you want to do good works? Well, your good works are going to flow from that rightness with God, not from trying to get right with God. And that is the essence of the gospel. That's it. So when I read this story of the, the rich young ruler, uh, I have to admit, I wish it ended a little bit differently. Right? I, I really wish <laughs> I really wish this guy was more like Nicodemus. Right? Remember we see Nicodemus later, he like helps with the burial of Jesus and he stands up for Jesus and the Pharisees, right? We go, oh, his heart has changed. And the Samaritan woman, you remember her story, she she hears the good news and she goes and tells everybody about it, and all these people get saved and she becomes this evangelist, right? I go, Oh, I wish this guy's story ended that way. But it doesn't. Instead, what we see is the young man heard this and he went away sorrowful because he had a great many possessions. Now, we could say for sure, okay, okay, 
We don't know what happened to this young man. We don't know who he was. There's no record of who he was in history or the Bible. Maybe he was somebody else whose who story played out in a positive way. Maybe he eventually went on and turned into the good soil where the seed fell and he placed his faith in Christ and God used him to do great things. Or maybe he continued in his idolatry. And that can really be the case for any of us, right? When we come to this place where we say, am I going to follow Jesus or not? We have a choice and we can go one way or another. So instead what this story gives us is it gives us an interaction between Jesus and his disciples, right? And so after this, the young man goes away and Jesus goes to his disciples and he says, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, a lot has been said about what this means, and there's a whole lot of different ideas about what it means and what is a camel to go through the eye of a needle, and people have had a lot of different ideas, and, and a lot of them are really good. But the one that makes the most sense to me is this, is that it's known that in those days, rabbis, a lot of rabbis walking around in Israel, they taught that when you had wealth, when you had possessions, when you were well off, that was a sign of God's favor on your life. And on the other hand, if you were poor and you experienced poverty, that was a sign that God was not satisfied with you or that you had some sin or that your parents had had some sin and there was these consequences. It was sort of like, you have money, that's great. You don't have money, you're in trouble. And I think in some ways Jesus is addressing that teaching and that is a teaching that really idolizes the idea of just having stuff, having things, having possessions, having money. And isn't it interesting that today there are many, many Christians around us in this country and around the world who still want to teach that same thing. That having money is a sign of God's favor and not having money is a sign of that you're not doing things right. But Jesus addresses it here. And so we think about that statement, oh, I think a camel through the eye of a needle. It, I think it's really a, a, a hyperbole. It's a hyperbolic statement. And it's really just saying this. It's very difficult for anyone with an idol in their life to get right with God unless that idol is torn down. The young man had an idol in his life. And he needed it torn down. And at that moment, he didn't do it. But that's what Jesus is saying. It's very difficult. It's very difficult. So, of course, the disciples respond to this. And they go, what? You know, the text tells us they were greatly astonished. And they said, who then can be saved? Who then can be saved? See, the disciples didn't see wealth as an idol. They probably had heard from those rabbis and they thought, oh, wealth is an evidence of being right with God. So you can see their confusion. And, uh, you know, surely I think maybe their expectation when Jesus had been interacting with that rich young man is that when he said, what must I do? Jesus would have said, no, buddy, you're good. 
Can't you see you got everything together and God's blessing you and everything's right? But Jesus didn't say that. And so Jesus, I love how he responds to the disciples here. He says, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. He connects them right back to what he was saying, which is that at the end of all of those good things you do, if you're working and working and working and working so you can be right with God, at the end is still an impossible gap between you and God. And what's the only way we can get across that gap? It's through Jesus Christ himself. And I think it's very clear. This is, seems very clear, but of course the disciples are you know, a little bit thick-skulled, and so uh, at least one of them is, is still confused. And so here's Peter, and he goes, See, have we left everything and followed you? What then will we have? <laughs> you know, in some ways, this is almost comic. Because Jesus has just said this. He just said, those who follow me will receive eternal life. And then Peter says, what are we going to receive from following you? (laughs) It's kind of like a little kid, right? When you're like, okay, we're going on a trip and we're going to Disney World. And they go, where are we going? And you're like, I just told you where we were going. What will we get? But Peter didn't understand, just like our kids, our little kids don't understand too. And so this just gives Jesus a chance to patiently and graciously reiterate what he just said before. He goes on here, and he says, Truly I say to you, in the new world, or in in the kingdom of heaven, when, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life how many who are first will be last and the last first and so again we see that each one of us is broken Each one of us is broken by our sins and separated from God. And there is no amount of good deeds. There is no magic pill that is going to make us right with God. Except to follow Jesus. The only way we can be right with God is to follow Jesus. And to follow Jesus we know means to receive the free gift of salvation and to make him the Lord of our lives. But to do this requires a sacrifice. And that sacrifice is not necessarily money. We don't want to be confused and think, oh, well, the only way to come to Christ is to sell everything I have. Like That's not what he's saying. But to be right with God requires that we sacrifice our idols. And our idols, really, I think in this context, our idols are anything that we have that we think will bring us comfort and security and peace and joy, anything that's not Jesus himself. And really, in this interaction, Jesus lists off several different idols that might be in our hearts where we're trying to derive comfort and peace apart from Christ. He lists off money and wealth. He lists off financial security 
He talks about the support of physical family. And he's not just talking about having a relationship with family. He's talking about looking to your family for acceptance and approval. He also kind of just mentions just doing enough, just doing enough good to be okay with God, that we can idolize that, that idea of if I'm just good enough, then I can stand before God and I'm going to be all right. We're just worshiping at the idol of doing good. And so what we have to do is we have to sacrifice our idols. And the way we sacrifice our our idols is we choose wholeheartedly to put our trust in Jesus Christ and follow him, which is what he said right here. And so next week, next week is Easter. And like we do every year, Easter is a chance for us to preach the gospel. And so next Sunday... In this format, in this Zoom meeting, I'm going to be very clear and preach the gospel and use an interaction of Jesus with somebody else to present the gospel. And I'm pretty sure every single one of you here who's sitting on this call has probably heard the gospel before. And so you might say, okay, we're just hearing it again. Well, we know that we need to keep preaching the gospel to ourselves. And so we're going to keep doing that. But I want you to think through this, what we talked about this morning and the idea of there being idols in our lives. And think of the people around you who have idols in their lives. And living in the culture that we live in, it seems very reasonable to expect that there's a lot of people around us who probably have some of these very idols of money and wealth and security and uh, the support of others, the acceptance of others, and just thinking they're doing good enough. And right here, right now, the situation that has befallen every single one of us might be causing them to question whether those idols are going to cut it. And so you have an opportunity. I think this is going to be a perfect chance next Sunday for you to invite somebody to sit in on this call and hear the gospel. And think about it. As challenging as it is in this culture to get somebody to come into a church building and sit here out here where your lovely pictures are plastered on the seats for me, it's challenging, right? Because in Colorado, there's, there's outdoor activities, and there's brunch, and there's sleeping in, and there's, oh, I don't want to have to get up and go sit in a place where I don't know anybody. And I, Well, guess what? It's going to be about as easy as it ever will be for somebody to hear the good news of Jesus through a church service. Because they can get up and turn on their phone or turn on their computer and click on a link. And you know what? If they don't want to be seen... They can just click stop video and they can watch everybody else and we don't have to see them and they can sit there and listen. They could even change their name into, you know, Mickey Mouse or whatever they wanted to put on the screen to have an alias so we don't know who they are and that's fine. But this would be a chance for them, people you know, to come join in and hear the good news of Jesus. I think that's what it's going to take in our culture. I think if we want to see revival if our hope and our prayer, and I hope you've been praying along with me as we've gone through and we're walking through it in the middle of this crazy season, my prayer is for revival. But I think for that to happen, there is a whole lot of people walking around us who are going to have to sacrifice their idols and choose to follow Jesus. And we have that answer. And so let's be looking around us and thinking about it this week and praying and taking that step of boldness to invite somebody 
Even somebody who you think, wow, they are far off from God. Maybe this is your chance. Maybe this is your chance to get the good news in front of them. Well, that's what I wanted to share with you this morning. I'm going to go ahead and pray, and we'll have a few announcements here. Yeah, God, um, thank you that you meet us right where we're at. And God, thank you that when you do meet us, you go right to the point and right to the place where we need you. And God, I'm trusting there's even a number of us who are, are listening this morning who are feeling the conviction of, oh, yeah, this situation, this pandemic is really revealed in me an idol that I have in my own life. God, and I can say that's probably even true of myself, Lord, as I've felt a lot of fear and a lot of insecurity and a lot of things going on. And I go, wow, maybe I'm not really following you as closely as I wish I was. And God, I thank you that even if I'm not doing that, even if I still have the, the residue of idols in my life, you've forgiven me, you've saved me, you've promised me eternal life, you've given me the free gift, and I've received it, and someday, maybe it's today, maybe it's in 40 years or 50 years or 60 years, I'm going to get to be in front of you and get to spend eternity with you and get to see those rewards you talked about those rewards that we get for sacrificing our idols to follow you. So God, help us to all grab a hold of that. Help each one of us to grab a hold of that, Lord. And as we grab a hold of it, help us in this season to turn our eyes out. Help us to look out to see our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers and our family members and those who maybe up until a couple weeks ago we would have said they are so far from God because it just feels like they've got everything right or they've got enough going on right that they just don't have a sense that they need God. And God, give us the boldness and the courage to invite them to hear the good news or to share the good news ourselves with them. Lord, would you help us in that? And God, there, there may be some among us who will be like this rich young ruler who will turn and go away sad and not be willing to give up their idols. But God, we trust there are those who will give up their idols and follow you. And Lord, we just want to be part of your work in doing that. Show us how to do it. Thank you, God, that we could be together this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.